every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd. He's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is Steve Masterson from Wastemaster Solutions. Steve is an Air Force veteran and current honorary commander of the Delaware National Guard. He's from Texas and has spent a long career in the waste management industry before found, co-founding Wastemasters in 2009. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. So for, for our show today, I'm going to be drinking an Oscar Blues, which is a, uh, a brewery I happen to really like in uh, Longmont, Colorado, but it's called a, a Good Night, and it's an Imperial Red Ale, which is not my favorite, but we're going to give it a shot. What are you, what are you going to be drinking? That's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm going to stick to a Peroni, the Italian beer. Being 71% Italian, I feel like I have to be loyal to it, and uh, <laughs> it's good with pizza or anything else. So I love it. I agree. Um, all right. Well, let's start. Tell, tell us a little bit about your business. Well, you know, Wastemasters came about in 2008, 2009, you know, during what was perceived a real awful time in, you know, in business, you know, and literally, um, you know, I'd worked for public companies for 20 years, you know, after the Air Force with waste management and figured I'd give it a shot to, to, to make a run on my own, figuring I could always go back and uh, work for the man if I failed, but um, failure was not an option. So we opened it up and we started off with just doing some refinery business. And uh, from then on, it grew over the next 12 years to a, a pretty large company. That's, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about your how an Air Force veteran from Texas ends up starting a business in the Northeast. Crazy question, and, and, and it would be hard to, to, to answer quickly, but I'll give it to you quickly. Is when I was in the Air Force, I worked with the space shuttle program and uh, really uh, as a rescue person. So we recovered aircraft. And um, after my career uh, in the Air Force ended, I went with the El Paso Fire Department and uh, thought I was going to stay in Texas the rest of my life in El Paso. Ended up having an accident at work and broke my back and my legs. So I couldn't be a fireman anymore. No and I had an uncle up on the East Coast, uh, my mother's brother. He had a big company and said, come up here and live in New Jersey and give it a shot. And I said, like, I'd like to live anywhere on earth other than New Jersey. <laughs> um, you know, it just cost, you know, it was so foreign to me. Even yeah. though I had visited before, but he said, hey, if you can make it in New Jersey and New York City, you can make it anywhere like the Frank Sinatra song. Yeah. And which proved to be, you know, spot on for me. So we moved up there and um we covered, recovered a lot of aircraft all over the world uh, as a private industry, uh, commercial aircraft, because once they hit the ground, the insurance owns them, and there's a lot of uh, money that could be saved in recovering engines oh. and stuff like that. So we were making tons of money and didn't want to give it all to Uncle Sam Yeah, and uh, said, we better do something. So we got involved in hauling waste out of transfer stations in Bergen County, New Jersey. Sure. And that grew into a pretty big business, which... Uh, defined me as a trash man full-time and a, a recovery person as a second time. So, you know, you don't always get to pick your opportunities. Sometimes 
your opportunities pick you. And then that's how I ended up uh, on the East Coast and always felt like I'd be going back home soon. And here it is, you know, 22 years later, and I'm still on the East Coast, no closer than going home <laughs> than I was back then. Yeah. So, so how, how does one get into the business of working on planes that have crashed and then finding out, you know, ways to go through? That's it. That seems fascinating to me. Well, it is because, you know, the Air Force, you know, if an Air Force plane goes down, you don't let civilians touch it. You have trained people that touch it just for because of technology, because of armament and stuff. So I was trained to do that. But what we what we were what we found out is that in private industry, no one was recovering planes yeah. and salvaging a jet engine that could be ten million dollars. Right. You know, so when when we entered into that kind of knowing what we were doing, sort of right, we had some expertise, but um, we learned as we went, and we didn't have any competition for four or five years. And once people realized what we were doing, and then they watched how we recovered a commercial aircraft at LaGuardia. Right. airport um, in Grand Cayman. I recovered a 737. Uh, other people started copycatting, but you know, the, the thing is, there's a superstructure in a plane. You support that. You save the, the jet engines if you can. And um, you know, it, uh, you turn a tragedy, you know, in most cases into uh, just a recovery type of business. Yeah. That, that's very interesting. So it was, no, it was a great time. Yeah, for sure. So, so tell me a little bit about what you, what did you do in the air force and, and how did you being in, in the air force shape you as a person? Well, you know, I didn't want to do more than what I wanted to do. My father was a Colonel in the army and I thought I was going to be a big time football player and realized I was too slow for that. Right. <laughs> so then reality sets in and you're saying like, what am I going to do? And I, I, I chose to go into the Air Force. I chose to go uh, into, it, it's called a firefighter rescue. It's a medic position for me. So yeah. as an Air Force medic, uh, along with the space shuttle uh, starting to kick off, they needed uh, people to work with uh, the space shuttle to recover. Astronauts, if the, it was a hard landing in, in, in any of the three different landing spots for it. So we trained and trained and trained. And luckily nothing like that ever happened. We all know about the, the tragedies that happened in the air. Sure. where there wasn't any rescue event. It was a recovery event, but we trained for it and it was an elite duty. You know, like, I feel like I've said it to my wife many times. I feel I've led a very forest Gump life, meaning that <laughs> I don't know how I ended up there. Right. Yeah. But I did. And it worked out. And I don't know how I ended up in the trash business, but it worked out. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I, I, I it, it's a very humbling thing when I watch Forrest Gump because I really feel like it's uh, the story of my life. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting analogy. I love it. And, and it makes sense. Well, you know, you, you can say I made this move right and I made this route move wrong and, and stuff. But clearly, you know, uh, you work hard, you take some strategic risks and um, some of them work out and some of them don't. And you just keep trying. And I was always uh, a little bit of a risk taker yeah. uh, by nature. So going out on the edge and trying something new was not scary for me. And for the most part, you know, they worked out and, and it, it put me in position to, you know, open up Wastemasters with a business partner. And from there, Delaware, it was just pretty freaking amazing. You know, it was a great yeah. place to be. Who would have known? I mean, I just got back from Greece and I, people say where you're from. And I've always said Texas because that's where I'm from. Sure. But everybody in the boat was, our, our boat was from Delaware. So we'd say Delaware. And they're like, where's Delaware? And we'd say by Philadelphia. Oh, that. 
And I'm like, this is ridiculous. How do they not know the first state? Right. right? Exactly. It, it, we get overlooked so, so horribly. And I'm used to being from Texas where everybody knows where you're from. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's been some, some cultural changes for me, but no, Delaware's home now and it's, you know, it's not going to change. And I'm very proud to be here. I always find it interesting when people say from another part of the country, they say, where are you from? You say Delaware and they go, well, what state's that in? I'm like, come on, man. Right. You know, no, exactly. And it's so insulting in one way. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, after a while you just say, you know, you know, they're the one that isn't a rocket scientist. Right. They don't know the first <laughs> state in the country, but yeah, there was a bit of that. So we all laugh about that. Yeah. Well, you bring up an interesting point about starting your business. And I feel like this is a a common theme that when you talk to people that have made that leap to entrepreneurship, that they sort of say, well, I don't, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to bet on myself. And if it doesn't work out, I'll just go get a regular job. But it's no one ever actually expects to go back and get the regular job, but it's always sort of a good, you know, that is always an option. That is, you know, having that as a quote unquote, worst case scenario is a really Interesting. It's a launching pad. I feel like there's two kind of entrepreneurs. There's one that are just creative and they, you know, always have this need to to try to expand themselves. And then the other ones that just can't work for anybody else. So they have to work for themselves. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like they're just, they're not, you know, they know what they want and someone else telling them what to do doesn't work for them. And I've always considered myself a conforming nonconformist. Right. You know, like I was in the military, you know, I came from a military family I was with a public company, so I knew how to stay within the rules, but I never really liked it. You know, I, I wanted to try different things. And, and, you know, when you have your own business, right or wrong, you, you can try whatever you want a lot easier and quickly than a public company can. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a book called The E-Myth that, that I've read a couple of times, which I think is really interesting. And it says most entrepreneurs don't set out to say, like, I'm going to grow this awesome business. They work so and they go, I can do it better than this guy. And they just right. end up sitting, you know, so that's, a, you know, as you mentioned, the second kind of business owner there is. I think it started as a kid. You know, I started mowing lawns because I needed money. I came from uh, a military family, which is below the poverty line for sure in El Paso, which is almost Mexico. And I started mowing lawns and I got too many customers. So then I hired a guy to mow lawns and he was mowing lawns. And the next thing you know, I hired another guy. So then they were mowing lawns and I was just collecting the money. Yeah. You know, a very, very Italian thing to do. But the next <laughs> thing I knew, I had four or five, four or five guys mowing lawns. Yeah. And I would get, you know, I would just take my cut off the top and they would mow the lawns. Like I had no clue what I was doing, but I knew that it was working. Right. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I'm not sweating in 114 degrees weather. I'm just collecting money. So, yeah, that, that was great. the start of my entrepreneurial spirit. I love it. The um, the thing I find interesting about Wastemasters is if you look at the trash business, one may say that it's sort of the commodity of all commodities, but you guys have done an incredible job branding yourself and sticking out. How have you been able to do that and really, you know, differentiate yourself from the other companies that are out there? So, you know, working in with the world's largest company, Waste Management, you know, I had the opportunity to do a lot of mergers and acquisitions kind of things. And I saw a lot of people, how they did it right, how they did it wrong. And, and, and when we wanted to open up in Delaware, which is a disposal neutral market, which is an advantage to smaller business. Yeah. Um, we wanted to stick out. We wanted to keep our equipment clean, our drivers sharp and, and not be a trash company, but be a service company and a part of the community. And as we grew, you know, these trucks became our billboards and our number one call for people was, we saw your truck, you know, and 
if you look at a lot of public company trucks, they look pretty tired considering, you know, the $13 billion, you know, but we took the approach as, Hey, that's our billboards going down the street. Yeah. Let's uh, let, let's make sure. And then did looked at some studies where black was just an attractive color. It's not an easy color to keep clean. Obviously yeah. it doesn't look good when it comes out of the landfill, but we, we would wash our truck. We wash our trucks twice a week to keep them clean. So people notice. Them. Well, I, I can you definitely attest to that and, and vouch for that. You see those trucks down the, you, even your dumpsters, they, they stick yeah. out, you know, it's pretty amazing to be able to take. It takes a lot of work to do that, but that, if that's your primary uh, form of branding, then you should be doing that. Yeah. You know, so that, that's you know, a great we, point. We, we took that approach. Yeah. So you start out in, in you said in 08, you started Waste Masters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you go from, you know, starting out as a small company to working on huge events like Firefly and having giant clients like the Philadelphia Eagles? By the seat of your pants. Yeah. You know, you, 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 we had done, uh, we, I worked hard with waste management to be a part of NASCAR and Dover Downs. And we were partners for years when we opened up uh, Wastemasters, they were one of our first uh, major uh, clients, you know, and, and it gives a mom and pop organization some legitimacy when it comes to branding, right? Hey, if you could do uh, Dover Downs, you could probably do DuPont. And if you could do DuPont, you could probably do 3M. And if you could do 3M, you could probably do this. So, you know, we, we learned the business, you know, on the waste management side and literally just expanded it and, and, and changed it to be more service orientated on our side. And in the Firefly event, you know, was a big one for us, you know, yeah. here's a, a medium sized company, you know, taking care of 114,000 people for four days. Right. Yeah. Um, we got our butts kicked a couple of times, you know, but we, had a diversion rate of like 78%, which was really high. And uh, there were Red Frog at the time uh, yep. who owned Firefly, a bunch of young, young people that had big, big ideas. And man, when I met them, I thought, man, they're a little crazy because they're way out there. These, <laughs> they wanted to constantly. But they were already, they were in charge and known the, the Spartan runs and all that. So they had an idea of what crowds look like and, and stuff. And then we gave them the local flavor of what we could do in Delaware. And literally that NASCAR piece led to the Firefly piece, which ties into the Eagle piece. And, you know, it's all kind of, you know, because of a reputation, when you do something wrong, everybody knows it. But if you do something right in in our area, everybody knows it. So it it, it helped us. It really helped us expand quickly. That's great. So I have to admit, I would imagine you have to be one hell of a salesman to be a Dallas Cowboys fan from Texas and be able to uh, to, to work with the with the Eagles. You know, on the surface, that looks like that might not work. Oh hell yeah, yeah, yeah! It was crazy because they called us right, and yeah. uh, my wife and I were driving down the road, got a call. You know, so and so from the Eagles wants to talk to you. So it was the day that they fired Chip Kelly. Uh-huh. And so when I got on the phone, I said, Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to coach the Eagles. I just can't do it. <laughs> and they started laughing. Right. You know, and like, yeah, why not? And I said, well, I'm from Texas. And they're like, no. And said, how is this going to work? So, you know, I said, well, what's up? You know, well, we have a lot of service issues at the link. We want to have someone here that'll really make it a priority. We've been to Firefly. We know what you could do. You know, let's see how we can work this out. And I said, well, not being a fan of the Eagles, I said, it'll be a hard sell 
to get a Cowboy fan to, to do that. But, you know, literally, you know, I, I've defined the Eagles as a, a family. Uh, I say the Cowboys are, for foot, are my football team because I don't believe in changing, right? And then, sure. but the Eagles are my family and, and they treat us, you know, they, everybody uses that partner word so freely today, but they truly treat us like a partner and we're a small partner, you know, yeah. in the big scheme of that, but literally they're a mom and pa organization behind the scenes too. It's, it's a handful of people working really, really hard to put on that big production and the people um, and the players don't really care so much about, uh, hating the Cowboys, they just, it's a job, right? Sure. So, you know, you know, luckily, you know, between, you know, some of my friends that have become lifelong friends now, you know, Brett Selleck and Brandon Graham, Yeah. you know, they, they, um, they're, they're true and true Eagles, but they don't hate the Cowboys. Like the fans hate the Cowboys or like the Cowboys hate the Redskins, right? You know, like that, that rival is a fan thing for life. They yeah. could be playing on the next team the next week. So, you know, their reality is, is, Hey, I, this is my job. I get paid to do it. I just got to do it really, really well. So it's, it's really interesting to be behind the curtains of the Eagles because they're a phenomenal organization. That's great. And I'd imagine the people that are filling your trash cans up with beer in the parking lots care a lot more that about oh, yeah. the Cowboys rivalry. than, than And we don't talk about that. Yeah. I, I, I never bring up anything. I don't go to the Cowboy Eagles game there or in, in Texas. Like I stay far apart because it's my family. Like if, they invited me to go to a game, uh, probably it was the season before last. And I said, no, it's a no-win situation because my team will lose one way or the other. Whether the yeah. Cowboys win, I feel bad for the Eagles. If the Eagles win, I feel bad for the Cowboys. So two weeks out of every year, we just don't communicate. That's You know, great. we just stay, yeah. <laughs> keep, stay in our lane, act like we don't exist, and we don't talk about it the next week no matter who won the game. It's like it never happened. Oh, and, and, it. and that way we are all one. And uh yeah, they've they've been a special organization to to myself and my family. I'm, I'm very proud to be partners with the Eagles. That's that's great to hear. So you know, I, you've you've talk, talked about your family a couple of times. So you are, and I, my, this might be one of the biggest understatements of all time. You're you're one of the greatest family men ever. Um, talk uh, about how you deal with the the stresses of uh, running a business, and you know, and having four kids and a wife you've been married to for 25 years. Yeah, 30. Yeah. 30 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that, so talk a little bit about how you, you're, you've been able to, to navigate that. Well, it's, you know, it's all about your core values. You know, I'm lucky that I've had a wife at home that was the CEO and yeah. she always worked full time too, but she handled all the, the stuff at home while I handled all the stuff at work. And, you know, we met in the middle and, and figured things out, you know, and, having two boys and two girls who now have, you know, four little boy grandchildren of ours. Um, it's, we just make it a priority Sunday dinner, you know, is, is something that we do. We gather, we, we get along, we, we try to vacation together. It, you're in charge of your destiny. You're in charge of your legacy. And if your legacy is being a great, great businessman, but a terrible father, then I don't think that that's a great legacy or vice versa. Yeah. You have to provide for your family. So Sometimes you're given 65% to work and 45% to, to family. And then the other week, it's the other way around. Yeah. You know, the true balance and the true goal is, is to make sure that you're good at both, not just be such a successful businessman that you leave the money or yep. such a slacker that you give them everything, all your love and stuff, but you didn't build anything for their future as well. So 
you know, that's what my wife and I have tried to do. And, and, and literally, she's a big piece of it. For sure. Yeah. And it seems like after 30 years, you know, just being around the two of you, it seems like you both genuinely like each other, which is no small feat after 30 years. <laughs> no, no. You know, it, it's true. You know, when you have your best friend, yeah. it's easy. But, you know, you have your moments. But when it's your best friend, you get over it quick and you get on to the other things. And, you know, that's a family, too. Like we get to pick our friends. Right. But you don't yeah. pick your family. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you live this life of balance, you know, say, all right, am I really thinking about what's really important? And I think now that I'm, you know, a grandfather and I have a 10 year old grandson and three little tiny ones now, you know, I watch their parents, our children, and I'd say, don't sweat the small stuff. You know, we tend to do that with parents. Parents say you're in a restaurant and your kid's crying. The only one that's stressed is the parent of the child. Everybody Very else true. is like, we know how that is. I've been you know there. I'm saying? Like, been there, done that, you know, yeah. so now, those are the lessons that you try to pass on to your kids is like, don't worry about the small stuff. You got to worry about the bigger things. Choose your wars carefully, right? Yeah. So when you look back, uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned the word legacy, which I think is a really important word. What it, it, is there a certain thing that you would love for your kids to say, my dad created this as our legacy? What, do you, what would you love that to be? Oh, I think it's the, the family, the bonding yeah. Not the not the vacation spot or a car or or something, a physical thing. We always in our family say collect memories, not things. Yeah. And and we make the time and it's not easy now with everybody and everybody's got somebody. Right. So if you say we're going to go here now, 10 people have to find a common week to go off or something like that. That's a challenge on, you know, times a hundred. So, you know, I respect what they do trying to make it and make it happen. And, you know, they all bought in the same development and they all live on the same block. All four of my kids. Amazing. Five minutes away. Yeah. So that's Forrest Gump is because you, yeah. you as a father and a mother, you can plan it as best you can, but you can't make that happen. We're a lot of luck. Two of my kids were in the service. They went away to different parts of the country, different parts of the world. And they came back to Delaware and now they're on the same block. Uh, as as all their other siblings, and now I'm watching these my kids raising their kids like a village, yeah. like a mom changing, you know, the, another kids or who's yelling at what baby because he's doing something crazy. So it's that that that's a blessing, you know. I mean, you, as a father, you, you know, you can't plan those things; you just hope for them. And so, again, we feel very you know blessed by that. You could not have scripted that 30 years ago or, or 35. Oh years hell, ago. not. No, but, and everything is always in change, right? Yeah. You know, just like I had opportunity and I moved around, you know, maybe one day they'll have an opportunity and have to move around. Yeah. And you can't say, well, don't go. We got this perfect system. Everybody lives within five minutes of each other. Sure. So you got to let them spread their wings, but man, it would hurt. Yeah. But you know, you, it, you know, a, a good parent supports them, whether you agree with them or not. Right. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying that they don't happen because they all have a baby that I like, even if, you know, <laughs> Can you leave that one behind and just go with yourself and leave the baby behind? Because it's much easier to be a grandparent than it is a parent, right? It's yeah. just much easier. I just say yes. And if they want chocolate and Mountain Dew before they go home, I'm all for that, right? You'll deal Here with you that go. with them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's your problem. That's not my problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's it. that. Um, one of the other things, you know, that sort of ties into this, you know, this values that the values that you've tried to instill is that you're incredibly charitably inclined. Um, you know, talk a little bit about 
how much time and effort and you know uh, support you give to charities and some of the ones that are important to you and, and why? Well, I think that growing up well below the poverty line, you know, I had an appreciation for money, you know, and knowing that if you didn't have any, you know, we all, my friends, we didn't know we were poor because everybody around me was poor, right? Yeah. So, you know, we would eat at each other's house or, you know, whatever the situation was. My mom passed away at, when I was 15 years old and, you know, my father was in his service, like kind of, so we were raising ourselves. I just, myself and my brother, but, you know, literally, you know, the village helped me stay on track. You know, the fellowship of Christian athletes, you yeah. know, I had a coach there named Joe Penny with my baseball coach and he kept me in that. And at the time I didn't know what he was doing, but he was saying, Hey, this kid could head to either side of the tracks really easy. You know, he's got a lot of alone time. He's, you know, Good and he's, he kind of, yeah, he kind of fathered me in, in our big brothered me in a way. And, yeah, you know, as I got older, I started to recognize, you know, uh, how people were to me and, and, you want to pay that back. And when you start to create a business and say, what do I want to do is I want to give back to our community because our community has given all of our hundred employees the opportunity to have a good living. And, you know, so it's been very easy between stop soldier suicide, the USO I'm on the board for the USO. I stay a lot focused with the soldiers, but we do a lot of work with the Delaware state police mounted patrol, the horses. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's a, it's a wide bag, but you know, what I find out is that you get more than you give, you know, sure. you can give a couple bucks, you know, and that helps them immensely. And they're very grateful, but your ability to see smiles on a kid's face or something like that, yeah. it's worth, you know, millions of dollars. So, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we're building bikes for kids this Saturday, a charitable thing where you buy the bikes, put them together, and then we're going to deliver them for local charities uh, it's because awesome. it's the right thing to do. Yeah. It's just the right thing to do. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, we were a couple of weeks ago, we had this, uh, episode scheduled, but it was, you know, right around the time that you, you sort of threw your energy into helping people that were stuck in Afghanistan, get back to the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I still stay in touch with a lot of guys that are on the ground and, you know, and literally when, when, when that thing went down, I wasn't in agreement on the way that we handled it. Right. And most uh, soldiers were of that same agreement. The ones that were still in uniform can't say that out loud because sure. they have to support the commander in chief and, and what we was. But the other ones were pretty angry. And what I what I realized in our, our veteran groups is that everybody wanted to do something. So we leveraged our relationships and um, found uh, what we want to do. Uh, the, the guys on the ground in Afghanistan to help bring out passported both blue and green passported uh, Americans. And I work close with Brian DeSabatino of EDIS, which we work with soldiers, uh, stop soldier suicide. You know, in a very short time, we raised millions of dollars because it takes millions of dollars in flights and helicopters and sure. ammunition and payoffs of the Taliban to get children and women out of the country. And you do it for a lot of different reasons. And you know, to me, what I what I've always failed to 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 not get my arms around is is you know, even a terrorist you know has a family, right? He has a wife, he has a daughter, and yet these men that call themselves God fearing men or whatever God that is will take these kids and sell them into slavery, 
sex sure. age. And that's how they raise money yeah. for years. This has been a thing. I abduct your little girl, less than 10. I either keep her for myself or I sell her to, you know, uh, an Asian market or, or a Russian market or, you know, a Middle Eastern market. And that's how they fund terrorism. Yep. And so for many years, you know, we've been involved in taking people out, but this caused a, a great shift in Afghanistan of girls thinking that they're going to go to college and they were going to be free to having to hide in my mind, we just had to do something. And, and these guys, our friends went in and hate to be so vague about it, but sure. you know, their, their families are, are still at risk here, you know, in, yeah. in other places, but, and they're still over there on the ground, but we had one, uh, 300 girls in a Christian nursery guarded for a couple nights, protecting them and got them out. Safely. That's amazing. Yeah, they're orphans, but they would have been part of the sex trade. You know, it, you just can't, I can't sleep at night knowing that I didn't do nothing. Yeah. So everybody could do something and whatever you do helps, you yeah. know, and I had, a, we did fundraisers of magnitude, you know, Tim Tebow got involved, Glenn Beck was involved, uh, some real big companies participated. Not everybody wanted their name on a label, right? Because, you know, there's some politics involved in it, but the the common person, you know, my friends, my raised tens of thousands of dollars of just Americans that wanted to help. Yeah. And, you know, my America isn't what I see on TV, you know, sure. the far left and a far right, you know, when there's something going on, we rally around each other and we're not Republican and Democrats. We're, we're Americans. So I was very proud of the response that we got. And yeah. you can give $10 or if you can give a million dollars, it's the same thing. You know, you're just trying to do something to help. And we really stepped up as a country to do that. I love, I love the idea that you're watching something unfold and you go, I don't like that. I need to help. I need to do something. A lot of people stop there and just say, I need to do something. Right. I don't know what to do. I'll just, you know, not do anything. So kudos to you. That's incredible. Thank you. Well, I think that, you know, most of us Americans try to figure it out, but we stop when we get frustrated of, I don't know what it is to help. Exactly. You know? yes. So, yeah, you know, I, I'm more tenacious than that. And, you know, older and, you know, I know people, so, you know, it's easier to kind of continue the, the, the struggle. So, yeah, no, that that's great. So I, I want to go back to talk a little bit more about, about Wastemasters because you had a exciting event happen this year. You, you guys were, were purchased. So can you talk a little bit about your experience about that, uh, you know, going through that, that acquisition and highs and lows and, you know, did anything happen that you didn't expect? So talk a little bit about that process. Well, literally, you know, it was over a year ago. And yeah. it's still off the radar screen. You know, I'm talking to you about it. Someone asked us about it. We talk about it. But Wastemaster still functions the same as it did before we merged with uh, Waste Connections as the company. Yeah. Uh, out of Texas, $7 billion, really great core people. I was not looking. We were an acquisition company, Wastemasters. We were not a, a seller. But 2020... Um, was, you know, a unique year for, you know, a hundred reasons, right? Besides the pandemic, yeah. you know, um, there was just the election. So you have all that, right? So, you know, and then all of a sudden that's getting, uh, you know, politicized and, and stuff. But there's just a perfect storm that put us uh, where Wall Street was looking for these public companies to still grow. Yeah. And we were uh, approached by everybody for many years to be uh, partnered with. And, and literally uh, Waste Connections was our kind of guys. You know, they're boots and jeans. They wanted to keep the uh, company uh, Waste Masters. They want to keep it black and 
some red on the cans. They want you to still stay in charge of it. Um, so we were considered a market entry for them and uh, into the Philadelphia region. And we went back and forth. It was uh, easy to reach uh, the financial goals because we didn't want to sell. We didn't need to sell. Yeah. So we had a pretty hard line. This is what it's going to take, you know, and um, we decided to go that path. And then, you know, the work begins after that, you know, all the, the lawyers are involved and, you know, there's, there's some of that, but, you know, literally we thought about how it impacts our, our customers, how would it impact our internal customers, our employees? What does it mean? And, and we picked the right company. They're very much of a, uh, a people company. I think our core values at Waste Masters are the same at Waste Connections. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a good group of people. And over a year has gone by now, you know, that we've been together and, 99% of our clients and customers haven't seen a difference. They don't know. Yeah. You know, I'm right. still running the place. There's still the same people that I've worked with for 20 years, you know, in the building. Um, there was no turnover of, about it. And really what it get, puts you in a position, Brian, is uh, our employees benefited the most because there's better benefits as a, a giant company, sure. uh, 401k, healthcare and stuff. And, you know, frankly, you know, I, and uh, my business partner was, we were worried about what the Biden tax plan was going to do to us. Sure. And, you know, I felt somewhere around September, October that this election wasn't, you know, going to go right. It was kind of probably go left. And, and the window of closing this deal and, and getting it done before the, the government takes more and more away from you. Yeah. If I told you what they took in taxes, but I know, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was aspirating. I mean, it really yeah. was just so angry that, you know, you pay taxes every single day, you know, you're paying payroll, how you pay this tax. Then when you sell your business, they come in and they, they want so much of it yeah. for selling it. Right. So, you know, it was a good guess on our part, you know, that, um, you know, the, it, it, we, you know, the election went democratic and, you know, now they're looking to continue to, to raise taxes. So we got out at the right time. Yeah. I don't know if that'll happen in the next decade. Sure. Um, you know, or so. Um, but we also, you know, was acquired by a company that cares about the people. And, mm -hmm. and that was so important. It wasn't like a private equity deal where, you know, three weeks after the deal is closed, you start asking, do you really need that person? Do you need that person? There has been nothing. As a matter of fact, you've already gotten two wage increases, you know, under their belts in, in the year period of time, you know, plus their benefits. stuff. So I'm very happy and proud that, you know, the majority of the people are, are very happy with the transition, you know. So, yeah. so I, I find it interesting. I'm sure when you set, when you opened the doors in 2008, you never thought that you're, you know, you were going to sell to a $7 billion company. That's never the intention, right? Well, no, in our industry, there are a lot of that. That's okay. Let's build it and sell it. Let's build it and sell it. It's it's always been, you know, it wasn't Mar Brian and I's uh, thought to do that. And that's why we were such a diverse company. Yeah. We weren't just a waste company. We had portable restrooms. Yeah. We have the trucking company. You know, there's so much to us because we felt like if, no matter which way the industries, things happen, we always had, you know, other lines of business. So we were never uh, built to sell. Right. And not every not every trash company would buy a waste masters because of how diverse we were in operations. This company liked that part of us and you know, liked that we do a lot of refinery work, like that we do, you know, the portable restrooms, the sanitation part of the business. So, you know, I, I, I think that what we thought we were doing for us worked out, you know, for someone else as well, you know. Yeah, for sure. 
What advice would you give to someone that owns a company that isn't really thinking about selling, but starts getting a call? Uh, what, what would you, pre- pre- you know, sort of do to help them prepare to be ready when they actually get that call from someone that's very serious about wanting to, to have them tuck into their bigger organization? I think the hardest thing is the due diligence part of a sale. You know, we ran Wastemasters like it was a public company. We did things right. We kept our books right. We were able to normalize our PL mm-hmm. based on, you know, um, you know, some things that all business owners put inside their business. So if you have your ducks in a row before you ever have a conversation, yeah, it makes things a lot easier, right? Because you're able to uh, pull documentation, you dump it into a data room. And if you don't like what they're saying pretty quickly, you could just say, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. You know, good I'll point. find somebody else, you know, but if you don't have, and, and, and we've done a couple acquisitions in this last year with waste connections for waste masters, and they didn't really have their ducks in a row. So that works against you. You know, yeah. you, you know, you, you really have to, to, to show it. And, and a lot of mom and pop businesses don't have time to, do some of that. You know, we we invested in our infrastructure inside the building to make sure that we could always be able to account to us. Yeah. And and then when you go to a public company, it's just right there. For sure. You know, yeah. and, you know Jeff Mitchell from Siegfried, you know him pretty well. Yep. You know, he kept us in line, uh, you know, doing stuff and you know, making sure we dotting our I's and crossing our T's. So, you know, they were a big help during a transition team too. So I mean. If you don't have your act together and you think you're going to sell your business, it's going to stress you out tremendously. If you have your act together and you think you want to sell your business, uh, the process is is much easier. Yeah, but it sounds like it helps take care of itself a little bit if you if you. Have yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you always hear when someone sells a company that the owner has a really tough time dealing with the new manager? It doesn't seem like you've had that issue at all whatsoever, which is a fantastic thing, right? How has your yeah, but- I would say that that's not accurate, right? Okay. Because when you're you're an entrepreneur and you're the owner of the company, you do what you want when you feel like you want to do it, right? Sure. Yeah. To go back to having to ask someone what to do, business owners struggle with that, right? Yes, for sure. You know, and I, I think that you know because of my experience in the public sector, I didn't. My father didn't run this company, and then I took it and sold it. You know, I, I've worked for public companies before, so getting in line was a little bit easier, Yeah, but not easy. It's not easy because you're, you know what you need to do and stuff. And now you got to ask somebody, you know, Hey, thinking about doing this, getting involved in that. And they're like, Oh, well, you know, tell us why you want to do it. It's like, cause it's a good idea. Like you don't want to spend all the time. And that's why I think private companies kick public companies butts because of the speed of decision-making. Yeah. You know, you make it in a conference room with your team and it's done. And in corporate America, you got to run it up the flagpole. And sometimes that pole is really high, like yeah. almost to the moon. And that's a frustrating thing. And yeah. I probably went through some buyer's remorse for a little bit because, okay. you know, there's that period where you're saying like, I really don't like telling somebody what I'm doing, you know, yeah. but it worked its way through because they're good people. And, you know, now, you know, we've, we've, we're in a different rhythm. Um, I see, you know, myself, you know, continuing with waste masters which is waste connections for a long time because they really let you run the business yeah so you know that's the plan that's great because you you sometimes you get that hover effect where you know i i remember i saw um the gentleman that that sold happy harry's to walgreens 
I heard, saw oh, him speak once, Alan Levin, and he said he barely made it. I think he said six months or a year because he was tired of having, quote unquote, a boss tell him what to do and say, well, we used to do it this way. And they would say, well, that's not how we do it anymore. Right. I consulted with those guys. Yeah. Alan is a great ally. And Alan helped Wastemasters come out of Maryland into Delaware, you know, a long time ago when he was with the uh, economic development or whatever it was called. Dito, I think it was yeah. Delaware economic development. So, you know, I had guys that have been there before and, and, and sought some uh, advice from them. And, and, and there is that, right? Because you, you, you know the market better than anybody else and, and all that. And, and a lot of people tell me, you know, it'd be surprised if you make it six months. But yeah. my due diligence on this company was this is the kind of company that I think that I could work for. So if I could work for it, I'm sure my people could work for it. So it was much different than, you know, uh, other ones where you're just seeking to make the most amount of money. I think Brian and I could have shopped it and drove a little bit harder deal that personally would have helped us sure. more. Yeah. However, you know, this is a good landing spot. And I think even we were just up in New York city with the employees of waste connections and they came in from a regional standpoint. I watched my people interconnect with their people and, and, you know, they're all laughing and they're all getting along. It seems like, you know, a year later and we were a COVID baby. So right. what I mean by that is like you do this acquisition last October, the world shut down again in November. So you know, now you're a part of a big public company, but you didn't have no visitors. You didn't have, you know, this stuff. So, you know, we're excited about 2022. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, because I believe that the world will be opening up more and more. And then you get to expand your horizons within the organizations and find out how much it helps you having $7 billion behind you to continue to grow and service your customers. It's, it's, it's a win-win. That's powerful for sure. Well, this is great. I, I really enjoyed talking to, I think your analogy of living a Forrest Gump life could not be more accurate. I, I love that yeah. analogy. It's, it's great. Well, you know, if you take all the credit for everything that you do, you better find a way to take the blame for the stuff that you do too. Good you know, point. so I blame it all on Forrest Gump, right? <laughs> you know, sometimes it happens and it works out fine. And sometimes, you know, you get shot in the butt in Vietnam, right? It just, it just happens, you know? So I feel like my life has been that way. And I'm, I'm very grateful, you know, uh, and humbled by how my life, but again, I don't think I could have done it without my family and my friends and my faith, right? Yeah. Those are just some of those uh, pillars of your foundation. If you don't have them in the right spot, probably the chances of your success are much less. Yep. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Steve. If, if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Steve and Wastemasters, go to wastemasters.com. If you want to connect with me on the Untapped app where I rate beer, my username is brcarney7. To learn more about how our firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And finally, to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. Now, I have to rate this beer. Not going to lie, not my favorite style. So I am going to give this it's a pretty strong beer, 8.7% alcohol. I'm going to give it a two out of five. It's just, I don't like red ales. So, and then obviously old reliable Peroni, that's got to be high up on the list. So that's going to get a good rating for you. Yeah, I give it a good rating. I'm not a hundred percent of a beer guy, but when I, when I, it's like wine, beer, whiskey, if you like it, you like it. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much the label is or what it costs. If you like it, you like it. Now, I've recently you know, come across, uh, I have heard about the, the drink in Texas, ranch water. 
Oh yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's outselling a lot of others. I think that I heard, you know, um, it's the number one selling one in, in in Texas, obviously, but now it's really growing. So that, that's yeah. great. That's awesome. Yeah, you well, can get it. You can get it in Delaware. I'll have to find it now. Now I yeah, can yeah, give it a yeah. try. Love it. I know you will. I have, <laughs> I have a lot of confidence in you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. No, the pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC. 